Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak a word uh, that has authority in this world, because this is your world. Uh, you made it, you made us, uh, you made our hearts and souls, and we pray that our hearts right now might be open to your word. Uh, soften our hearts, we pray. Prepare us to hear you speak and change us, we pray. We ask this for your glory's sake and our good. Amen. Well, let me start with this picture. There he is, uh, the boy on the platform. This is one of my favourite uh, pictures I've had uh, just in my files for, for many a year. It comes from an old website uh, a number of years ago. Uh, I think it was called Post Secret. And what people would do is they'd either send in a photo that they had or a postcard and they would write on it either a secret that they hadn't really told anyone or some, a longing, a desire that they had. And all sorts of things uh, appeared on that, some, some of them very questionable. Uh, some of them uh, tapping into deep desires that many of us have. And I think this is an example of it. Here he is, uh, the boy on the platform, staring down the platform, looking down the tunnel, uh, expectant, uh, but also a, a bit uncertain. And I think that captures an experience that many of us feel as we look to the future. As we stare down the tunnel of the future, will what's coming round the corner be good news or bad news? Uh, we don't know. Uh, and whatever's coming, uh, if it is good news, will it actually last and will it actually make any difference? Uh, we're not really, in, uh, we, we know so little uh, about our future that those are the sort of questions that are before us. And I suspect that feeling has been ramped up even more in these last few years as waves and waves of COVID have sort of hit Australia and hit our world. We, we have no idea as they sort of come and go what, what's coming around the corner. We hear all sorts of hopes and promises from our politicians, but they know no more than we do. And we do wonder what's next. And perhaps it's not COVID for you. Perhaps it's just things more personal, perhaps for you or for your family as you look to the future. And uh, that same question that the boy is asking there, what, what am I looking for? What's coming? And and again, will it, will it be good or bad? Uh, will it last? Will it, will it actually change anything? Well, those sort of questions that I think are in the hearts of almost every human as we think about the future, Mark's gospel makes this amazing claim in, in the first chapter that we saw as we started this series last week. It makes the, the claim that the decisive moment of all history, that all history has been waiting for, has actually arrived. That there's no more waiting uh, if you've got the passage open there, if you look at uh, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, as Jesus steps onto the scene of human history, that's the claim he makes. The, the time is fulfilled, he says. It's, it's full. There's no more waiting. Uh, the hourglass is, is run through. This is the moment. And what's the moment? Well, it's the moment our king has come. God's king has come, Jesus. And yes... As you see there in verse 14, and it was also in the very first verse of Mark's gospel, it's good news. We don't have to wonder whether it's good news or bad news. It's good news. In fact, it's God's good news for a waiting world. And as to whether it will last, read, the, read on in the gospel. And we're told that this king that has arrived hasn't just arrived for a moment. He will be king forever. And as to the difference he will make, well, as we go through Mark's gospel, we're going to see that he makes all the difference in the world. And so really, as we start Mark's gospel together, what we're going to see is that this is a gospel written to give you surety about that future and about this king. It's to give you surety that the king's arrival is actually good news for you. And it's to give you surety that he actually has the authority to bring change that will last. And I reckon for all of us, that is a huge relief 
Because we live in a world, and uh, Sydney, Australia is no different to this, where we're used to false promises about the future, false promises about change coming that, that, that never come through. Uh, where our politicians are, are masters at it, and they're just us, really, uh, in, in the mirror, so they're no different to us. But you watch, in the, in the coming months, I think we're a few months away from a federal election, it will be a season full of promise, but not necessarily a season full of substance to those promises. And that's not just true for the politicians, it's true even in our own hearts. Perhaps many of us in recent weeks, as the New Year started, have made vows to change. This year is going to be like this. This year I'll do that or, or that. And uh, well, it's hard to make it last, isn't it? Well, Mark's Gospel declares again that the King has come and that he has authority, real authority, to bring change that will last, to deliver on his promises. So what I want you to do with me is uh, it's well worth having that passage open in front of you and we're going to look at Mark 1 and we're really going to see two things. We're going to see how this king exercises this authority and then we're going to see the difference that authority actually makes. So let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, consider this. Consider how King Jesus exerts his power or his authority in this world. And uh, with that in mind, just think for a second about how the rulers of this world, the powerful, the elite, exert their authority. I mean, think about Australia. Uh, I guess my impression of the, uh, the movers and shakers, the government uh, of our world and the opposition and stuff, is that the way power is exerted in Australia is endless power plays and factional fights and leaking and you name it. That, that's how we exert power. Uh, and then if you look across the pond to somewhere like the UK, uh, Boris Johnson under constant fire at the moment for what they're calling party gate, a seemingly endless parade of parties and birthday parties at, uh, at the Prime Minister's house. And here is a man who, or at least the accusation is, he has the power to be above the rules that he makes. And then you get someone like uh, Vladimir Putin, and again the allegation at the moment that the way he wants to exert power is to have more of it, to have more control, to expand our world is full of rulers like that. But in the midst of this, God has installed his king, Jesus, our king, and his rule is incredibly different to this. In fact, if you jump forward in Mark's gospel to, to chapter 10, uh, you've got this amazing interaction between Jesus and his disciples where they're starting to see real momentum in what Jesus is doing and they're starting to think, you know, what we might be quite famous here and quite powerful. And so there's almost this sort of interaction uh, amongst the disciples about who might be the most important in this setup. And in the midst of that, we're told in Mark 10, verse 42, Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. And then jump down to verse 45 of Mark 10, and here's how he's going to rule. For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is a king unlike we experience in this world when we see human power at work. Uh, human power is all about lording it over others and keeping control. Here is a king, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, who's actually come to serve, not be served. And the startling thing in these opening verses of Mark's gospel is that the way Jesus exerts his power and authority is primarily through one means, it's his word. It's by speaking. And again, I, I think as we, as we sort of see that in these opening verses, that should concern us. Because again, we're used to powerful rulers and kings and prime ministers uh, speaking lots. 
We're used to half-truths. We're used to spin. We're used to all of this. So someone who says that they're going to exert power by speaking, that, that, that worries us. Uh, and indeed, in the time of Jesus, the religious elite who held power were like that too. They spoke lots, but without any real authority. And yet King Jesus is different. Have a look. Have a look at verse 21. Uh, the scene there is the synagogue, and the synagogue is really uh, what we model our church on. That's what church is like. It's the gathering place of God's people to hear God's word taught. And what's brilliant about the synagogue, uh, uh, you'll probably appreciate this, is that it wasn't really a place for clergy, for reverence and things like that. It was actually a lay assembly. Uh, they sort of kept the clergy out of it. That's generally where things go best, but uh, they kept the clergy out of it. And basically, any able man who knew the scriptures could be called upon to teach in the synagogue and that's why jesus is teaching here in this scene and have a look as he starts to teach verse 21 the impact of his word is immediate we're told there the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law you know, the usual practice of somebody who stood up in the synagogue to teach is that they'd cite other sources, uh, what other rabbis were saying or, 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 or the like, uh, but not with Jesus. He doesn't cite any other authority. Uh, this is his word. He is the source of the authority. It, it's like you get in some of the other Gospels. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospels, uh, a great example. Jesus will say again and again in that sermon, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He is the authority. It's a word with authority. When he speaks his word, he speaks a word of command, a word to be heard and heeded. And as we've seen as we've gone through Mark's gospel already, it's a word with a very specific content. Uh, you remember it as he began to preach in Mark 1 verse 15. Here's the content. Here's the gospel. The king is here. Repent. In other words, surrender. Believe. In other words, trust. Follow. That's the content of his preaching but here's here's what's remarkable about jesus having that ministry it's actually a dangerous ministry and a dangerous word that he preaches in our world uh, uh, have a look with me at, at the sort of chain of events in in mark chapter one uh, the first preacher in mark do you remember we met him last week it's john the baptist uh, we're told in verse four that he was preaching a gospel of repentance and faith and here's what happens if you start preaching that gospel in our world. Uh, by verse 14, what's happened to John the Baptist? He's arrested. And again, as I did last week, spoiler alert, if you keep going along, he will be beheaded for this ministry. And yet what's happening for us in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, it's like the baton's been passed. Uh, we're told just as John the Baptist was imprisoned, here's the baton, Jesus began preaching that same gospel. And I reckon we're meant to see in that moment he started on that same path. We know where the path is going to end. We know where Jesus is headed. And yet, despite the danger of it, despite the certainty that he too will be arrested and he too will be killed, it's not an optional word for him. It's an urgent priority. We'll see more of this in a moment. But if you jump forward in our passage to verse 37, you've got this scene where there's this huge need all around Jesus, all these people who are needing healing and are broken. And, and Jesus' response, verse 38, let's go somewhere else so that I can preach because that's why I've come. It's striking, isn't it? Often, I reckon, when people read the Gospels, there's a sort of a weighing up, which is more important, what Jesus does or what he says. And we probably all fall 
one way on, on that equation. But what we're seeing in these opening verses is that the most powerful activity of Jesus is his word. And that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, he is the God who Genesis 1 tells us made the heavens and the earth by this word. Jesus' word is how he shows authority. It's how he displays his power. It's how he brings change. And so I want you to see with me, and you can see this on the outline, three ways that, uh, or three differences really, that this king's authoritative word uh, makes in our world. Here's the first of them, verse 23 to 28. The king's word has authority to silence evil. Uh, right from the start of the gospel, we see that God has sent his king, our king Jesus, into this world to do battle against evil, to do battle against Satan. And the way he's going to do it is by this word silencing what evil is doing in our world. You know, there's great power in truth in this world, isn't there, in amongst lies. Um, uh, Ukraine has been in the news a fair bit of late, and uh, it did remind me of uh, well, a dramatic moment in the history of the Ukraine, uh, the Orange Revolution. I don't know whether you remember the Orange Revolution from the early 2000s, but the hero of that revolution was a lady by the name of Natalia Dimaruk. Um, and uh, here's Natalia in that pretty grainy picture. She's, this is her on state television in the Ukraine. And uh, what had happened is that late 2004, there'd been an election, presidential election, and the election had been completely rigged to uh, be in favour of the incumbent president. And surprise, surprise, he won yet again. And so it was business as usual, and this is being reported on the news, a great and glorious victory for the president. And that is when Natalia steps in. There she is. She'd been assigned that night to uh, sign the news for deaf viewers on this state-run media. And as this news of the glorious victory is beginning to be uh, broadcast, Natalia began her translation. It was simple, and she repeated it over and over again. It is a lie. Don't believe them. We must protest. And that one woman speaking truth in the midst of lies uh, sparked a revolution across a whole country. Well, what we have here in Mark's gospel is the, our King Jesus embarking on a revolution, not just for one nation, but for all of creation. He goes straight for Satan, the father of lies. He goes after him with the word of truth, the gospel. Uh, you see a couple of examples of it here in these early verses. Uh, firstly, verse 12, uh, straight after his baptism, do you notice that he's sent by the Spirit into the wilderness to do battle against Satan? And the other Gospels give us more detail about this battle. Uh, Luke 4, for instance, if you want to look that up later. And in those uh, other accounts, you see Satan for who he is. He's a liar. He takes God's truth and he twists it. And how does God, how does God, uh, God's son, our king, uh, compete with that? How does he counter it? He speaks truth over and over again. The primary lie that Satan tells our world and tells our hearts is that you and I are self-sufficient creatures that we're self-ruling creatures, that we were made to be self-exalting creatures. That's the lie, and it's very tempting, but it's destructive, and it leads to death, not life. And so Jesus will, all the way through this gospel, do battle with that lie and the, the person who tells it, Satan. By chapter 3, uh, he's actually accused of being in league with Satan, and he has to say this, you know, he calls Satan the strong man. He says, here's what I've come to do. I've come to walk into the strong man's house and tie him up. So he is powerless. And how does he do it? Well, he speaks the truth, that's how. Have a look with me uh, at our passage. You'll see an example of it. Verse 23. It 
It's in the synagogue again. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, I love this. Every time uh, an evil spirit or Satan appears on the scene, they know exactly who Jesus is. Their theology is perfect. They know who he is, but they hate it. And so confronted by evil once more, Jesus wields his power as king. How does he do it? Do you see it there? Verse 25, listen to it. Be quiet. He speaks. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. And the response from the people who watched this, verse 27, do you see it? The people were amazed. And they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and actually with authority. Here is one who in our world has the power to stand down the pomp and the destructiveness of evil in our world. And that's a, that's a great thing, isn't it? Isn't it good that we have in Jesus a king who, uh, who confronts real evil in our world, that all we need to do is look at the, at the news and we see it. Here is one who can actually bring a stop to that. But more close to home, here is one who sees real evil in our own hearts. And if we're honest enough, we can see that in our own hearts. And to bring an end to that, he will say, be quiet, repent, believe. Here's the second way he, uh, his authority makes a difference. Have a look at verse 29 to 34. The, the king's word has authority, this time to calm sickness in our world. And uh, I've actually deliberately chosen that word calm because, you know, the Bible often when it's talking about the brokenness in our world, especially brokenness around physical sickness and the like, uh, the, the picture it uses is of a sea at storm, absolutely raging and out of control and fearful and uh, we can't do anything about it. But but listen to the promise that God makes about the new creation that King Jesus will bring. Right at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. Have a look at this verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now that might be disappointing for the surfers, but uh, it's not actually about there being no sea. That's made clear elsewhere in Revelation. What it's about is there's no more storm. There's no more tumult. There's no more things that are going to pull us under. The storm of brokenness in our world will be calm forever. And throughout Mark's gospel, we're actually given glimpses of that. And do you know how the king calms the storm? He speaks. Uh, Here's a whistle-stop tour of some of the things that we'll see. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 41 in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus meets a leper and he simply says to him, Be clean. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 11, he meets a paralytic and he says, get up and walk. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 39, literally to a storm, he will say, quiet. Chapter 5, verse 41, perhaps the most moving scene in all of Mark's gospel, he will say to a little girl lying dead in her bed, little girl, wake up. Here in Mark, uh, in these opening verses, if you look at verses 32 to 34, we have uh, in typical Mark abrupt efficiency the story of one night where he healed the brokenness in a whole town. (laughs) Imagine that night. Imagine being at Simon Peter's house doorstep as the whole town turn up that night. It's like heaven opens at that moment and we get a glimpse of the power and the promise of this king as Jesus walks on earth and, and we see his authority to speak and calm the storm. 
the same king who will one day say over all of creation as he does in Revelation 21 verse 3. Again, it's his word. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and then verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Here is the power of King Jesus. He's, he will one day speak in our world, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more sickness, quiet, be still. What a future. I mean, don't you, don't you long for a future like that? Don't, don't, I, I suspect we long for it if the brokenness of our world at points has broken us or those we love. Don't you want the waves of brokenness that we're experiencing in these recent years as wave after wave of COVID comes and goes and we have no power over it to finally be stilled? And it's not going to come from a vaccine and it won't come from a government promise. It will come from the word of this king. We need this king. We need his voice. We need to see his priority. That there, even with this scene that you get in verses 32 to 34, he retreats. And he doesn't retreat because it's too powerful for him. He retreats because he has a priority. Remember it? They find him in verse 37. They say, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replies, let us go elsewhere to the nearby villages so that I can preach. That's what the world needs, says the king. In the face of all of this desperate need, he knows what will finally calm the sea. Not for a moment, but forever. It is proclaiming the good news of the king. You know, this desperate scene in verse 32 and then Jesus' response and priority, it reminds me of a a painting that I saw a number of years ago by an Australian artist called George Gittos. Uh, and uh, here's, here's how the Sydney Morning Herald described it. George Gittos describes the events behind his painting, which won the 1995 Blake Prize for Religious Art. Uh, under the auspices of the United Nations, Gittos and a medical team were visiting the village of Cabello when suddenly they found themselves in the midst of a massacre. It was horrific. We saw children uh, being killed before our eyes. We were going in and trying to get the wounded out as people were macheting and shooting and killing. And suddenly, there, in the middle of it all, there was this guy standing there uh, as people were dying all around him. And he just began to give this sermon in one of those beautiful, melodious African voices, mingling English and French and, French and Rwandan, and quoting those parts of the New Testament, those bits that speak of hope uh, beyond this life. I thought it took tremendous courage, says Giddos, because he exposed himself and yet he had the presence of mind to know that this is what people needed to hear. Well, in a world beset by evil and brokenness, there is only one word with the authority to calm the storm. It's the voice of our King Jesus. It's the voice, the word of his gospel. One final way this word makes a difference, have a look at it in verse 16 to 20. And what you see there is wonderfully, this word of the king doesn't just have authority over things like evil and sickness. It actually has a power to call people, to change whole lives. Jesus uh, doesn't just speak a word that, that leaves us where we're at. He, he speaks a word that changes us forever. I won't read the verses, but if you read through verses 16 to 20 and you see uh, Simon, or, or as he's called later, Peter and Andrew and James and John, the, the, the theme with all of them as they hear Jesus' word is they leave. They leave nets, they leave their home, they follow him. Later in uh, the gospel, Peter will say to Jesus, you know, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. That's the power of this word. When Jesus calls a person, he calls surrender, trust, follow. And so as we close, I, I simply want to ask you, what difference has this king's word made to you? 
I reckon sometimes we can read the Gospels and read this, this moment in verses 16 to 20 as he calls these men as something like a museum piece. Uh, as he calls them, uh, we think he's calling them, not us. It's, it's, it's their thing. Uh, we hear the call and we admire their impulse just to drop the nets and, and follow after him. And we ourselves, well, we leave church at the end of the service and then we follow, well, our own path. We fashion so often Jesus into a king who just baptises our choices. But if Jesus is king right now as we meet, and he is, and if your faith is in Jesus, then he is saying to you, uh, mine is the voice you heed. Mine is the voice you hear. And so let me ask you, does he call the path of your life as you look to the future? Or is that still your remit to call the tune on the future? How easy it is to treat the voice of our king like some comfortable soundtrack that just confirms our choices. But he doesn't speak words like that. He's the king. And he's the king who knows that in this world there is a battle for your heart and he intends to win it and he intends to win it by speaking that you may obey him. If the word of King Jesus has left you over time in life right where you were, then I want to humbly suggest to you as we close that you're not listening to him. The call of Peter and Andrew and James and John is not some quirky museum piece. He calls all people in the same way. Uh, I won't read the verses, but uh, they'll flash up on the screen there. Have a look at them later. Mark 8, 34 to 38. As, as the disciples are weighing up whether to follow him, he, he doesn't just talk to the disciples. He turns to the whole crowd and he says, follow me. Brother or sister, when you hear his word, where is your heart? Are you ready to obey or are you reluctant to move? And let me ask you this. As you've heard his word over the years, if you've been a Christian for some time, how has that word changed you? How has it changed your priorities? How has it changed the things that you're absorbed in and committed to in this world? And, and don't just think back to some golden era of your Christian life. How has he changed you lately? Because that change is actually a lifetime thing, not a one-moment thing. Uh, listen to this quote by uh, Elizabeth Elliot. I, I love it because it captures brilliantly the sort of surrender that we need to keep making. One does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong, which is following Jesus, can only be surrendered in a lifetime. So if his word has left you largely unchanged, then again I put it to you that you're not listening. He calls surrender. He calls follow. And what better moment than this as we gather here this morning, uh, if you've never followed him, to perhaps start that journey. And what better moment than this if perhaps along the way you've slowed or stopped in following him to follow him again? And don't fear heeding his voice. You remember who we met last week as we started to see the king? He's the servant king and his job is to lead you home to your father. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus again is making this wholehearted call to follow him. Uh, in John chapter 6 and at that point as he makes that call, we're told many leave and stop following and Jesus at that point turns to Peter, who gets called here in Mark 1, and he says, do you want to leave too? Peter's response, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you've got the words of eternal life. As he calls you again today, keep in mind the power and authority that his word has. It has the power to end the lion, silence evil. 
It has the power to calm the brokenness in you and this world. It has the power to make all things new. It's a word that can call your evil and my evil and broken heart and say, come, follow me. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for King Jesus. We thank you that where we are weak, he is strong. And we pray, Father, that we would be those who heed his voice as he leads us home to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand.